This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Developmental dyslexia represents one of the most common problems affecting children and adults in the United States. The prevalence of dyslexia is estimated to range from 5 to 17 percent of school-aged children, with as many as 40 percent of the entire population reading below grade level. But what exactly is this problem, and is it a true disability or simply another way of learning? Here with more on this is Dr. George Starr. He's Emeritus Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Starr. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So let's begin by defining what we mean when we say dyslexia. What exactly is it? It's difficulty with the reading and writing process, uh, spelling, uh, those areas of, of information transmission. In people who would otherwise, you would assume, their language skills from on an apparent level, seem to be developing With otherwise normal normally. Uh, intelligence, yes. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it seems like it's one of the most common problems caref- and carefully studied of the so-called learning disabilities, but is it truly a primary problem in and of itself? Tell us more about your understanding of what you think it is now. I believe it's related to uh, family inheritance, and we see families where reading and writing skills are poor. And the way I think about it is about uh, thinking about the origins of language in human beings. We've been on the planet for close to three million years, but we've only had spoken language, the ability to uh, name things and and talk about things with other human beings for as little as 100 to 200,000 years and possibly as little as 55,000 years when Homo sapiens sapiens came on the planet, and that's us. Uh, so that's, you're talking about oral language oral now, language, spoken language. Spoken language, and which is a form of code. And uh, so we, there was a mutation possibly in something called a FOXP2 gene, uh, which is present in other mammals. Uh, but this uh, mutation possibly gave us the ability to have uh, this type of coded communication, which we call language. Then that's so that's getting back to oral language, right? But now we are talking about a difficulty that has arisen in, in a written sec- language in a secondary mm. form of language or a secondary symbol system that we have basically based upon our spoken our oral language. language. And that's uh, reading and writing are only uh, have been present in human beings for perhaps six to eight thousand years and uh, occurred when we changed over from hunter-gatherers to farmers after the recession of the last ice age about 10,000 years ago when we began farming and raising animals. And uh, people are able to support a larger population through farming than through hunter-gathering. And so that uh, uh, we saw the rise of cities and then civilizations uh, and the rise of commerce. And commerce, I gave you three bags of grain and you gave me two sheep, uh, often requires some form of record keeping. And that was the beginning of, of some kind of writing process, which began with pictographs and hieroglyphics, and then finally evolved into forms of alphabets. So you're, you very, very uh, articulately and eruditely has, have laid out kind of the evolution of both spoken language and written language. But what you're postulating here is that something has gone awry in some people where their ability to make the transition or translate the oral or spoken language into the written uh, symbol system 
is is malfunctioning in some way. That's correct. Uh, reading and writing actually was a very limited skill. Uh, six, 8,000 years ago, there were only a few people uh, who were trained in writing and, and reading. And it's only the last couple of hundred years where reading and writing has become expected to be a universal skill. And yet, you know, if we think about the short duration that we've had uh, and practiced this skill, I think there are simply families that never uh, developed those skills or lack, uh, for some reason, the ability to develop these skills. And these are normally intelligent people who are normally functioning in our society, but reading and writing is simply outside their, their abilities. In the same way that some people have musical abilities and the rest of us don't, if our survival de- 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 uh, depended on being able to sing, some of us wouldn't survive. That's a very <laughs> interesting perspective. So basically, what you're suggesting, and others have suggested, that some kind of a deficit in the ability to process what we already know, which is our language, that we know by sound and by ability to reproduce that sound, we, we, that some of these people, some large percentage of people, have the difficulty in taking that to the level of doing it from a visual symbol system Spatial in some system, way. Yeah. And it's a form of a genetic uh, process where some of us have that skill and some of us don't, in the same way some of us can sing and some of us can't. Some of us have math abilities and some of us don't. And so I, I think of reading and writing as being one of those special skill sets that most of us have, but some of us don't. And some of the people who don't are just normally intelligent, uh, just like the rest of us. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatrician Dr. George Starr. We're talking about dyslexia. Well, I guess the question here is, well, let me just give you a little sidebar question. How is this type of difficulty with reading and writing is it the same or different than the problem we see in with reading failure in areas of either high poverty or poor, ineffective schools? Uh, I think they're different uh, problems. Uh, here, uh, with children with dyslexia, even when there's early reading uh, experiences with uh, with families and in schools, these children still have difficulty with the reading process. But in high poverty areas where parents don't feel they have the ability or don't take the time to read to their kids early on, these kids lack the experience of exposure to language in, in, uh, in spoken and written form, and so they often will have difficulty with language in school. So you're, in your opinion, it's really a little bit of a different. One is more culturally or um, educationally Developed. That's correct. Or the, the lack other, thereof and the other is, is more of inherited and a kind of a genetic. So that even with thing. good exposure to reading and writing, uh, early on, uh, some people struggle with this particular skill set. So that's my next question. So then, how does all of this, the existence of this inability or difficulty, how does this impact on the development of the child? And how about in terms of appropriate interventions for those? types of children and adults? Uh, Once we recognize that a child is having difficulty with reading and writing, we need to find other ways of communicating information. Often this will be orally or visually through pictures. Uh, Many of these kids are quite capable of of very good learning. I run into kids with very high IQs uh, who are quite capable of learning. Actually, one of the fun things to do is to punch up on Google successful dyslexics. 
and you'll run it across a whole bunch of people, inc including uh, uh, Robin Williams, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Cher the singer, David Boyce, who's a constitutional attorney, um, who else? Richard Bramson, who founded Virgin Atlantic. Wow. Uh, Records That's quite and an airlines. impressive list. So there are some very impressive people out there with very good skills who just have difficulty with reading and writing, and so often do their children. So your bottom line here really is that the approach to education for those types of children needs to have some flexibility. and Yes, and well that, said, yeah. And not only to try to teach them to read and write the way we read and write, but to try to find other st strategies for educating. For educating. And providing for them with the information. information. yes. And one would think today with our advanced technologies and basically multidisciplinary ways of, uh, or multi-sensory ways of getting information, and that it would be, this would be a good age to be dyslexic, one would think. I wonder if that's one actually true. Think I don't know. Uh, one of the things I often do when I'm working with medical students is ask if anybody, if they know any doctors who are dyslexic. And uh, I actually had an experience with a pediatric resident just a couple of couple of months ago, where she raised her hand and said, "Yeah, I'm dyslexic." And here she is, a pediatric resident. I said, "Did you get it from your father?" She said, "Yes." I said, "Is he a businessman?" She said, "Yes." I said, "Is he doing well uh, in his business?" She said, "Yeah, very well." So are there other experiences that you've had, not only in this case, but with children that you've taken care of over the years that you've seen that either have had positive educational responses or perhaps negative ones? I've seen both. Uh, and when we uh, understand that a child has a, uh, a reading or writing problem, a spelling problem, then we try to talk with the teachers about making allowances. If, if the thought content is good in what they're writing, even if their spelling is terrible, we try to give them credit for the thought uh, and, and the ability to put their ideas together. Uh, so it strikes me that one of the biggest messages here is to first have an accurate diagnosis or recognition of a problem as opposed to maybe just a slower uh, learning style, meaning a slower uh, acquisition of these right. skills. Family but history is critical. And one of the things I've learned to do is to ask the parents if they read for pleasure. Many parents with reading difficulty will, can read for work, but they rarely ever have a book on their bedstand. And so that's one way to get at a history, a family history of reading difficulty. Uh, one of the children I saw early on was a seven-year-old girl, seven, second grade, who had problems in school, reading and writing. And I asked her parents, do you read and write? And her mom says, oh, yeah, I read a book a week. And dad says, well, I can read for work. Uh, and mom says, yeah, but you don't read otherwise. He says, well, I'm a bus driver. I don't need to read. But there was this family history then, a genetic history of a reading difficulty that was passed on to the daughter. And once we recognized that, we were able to help make help her school understand what her difficulty was and adjust her education. Well, I think that's kind of the key message here, is that to see it as rather than a quote-unquote disability, that this is a different way of learning. Or needs a different way of learning, people. yeah. And that clearly these children need to be understood yeah. and perhaps have compensatory strategies taught to them or that, or And used approaches. in the education process, yeah. They are quite capable of learning, but we need to find other input methods rather than reading and writing. What systems have you observed that seem to work in your own experience? Actually, I... Don't, uh, I think it's using oral information, sometimes tape recorders. 
uh, that kind of thing. Many children with reading disabilities will actually learn to read. It's slow, it's laborious, but sometimes they find it's actually faster than using a tape-recorded uh, uh, textbooks. So uh, usually there's, there, are, there are workarounds, uh, and every student finds their own, their own way. And I'm sure that in col even at the, at the higher education level, that there are these kids struggling. And once again, because of all the technology available these days, one would think that there would be ways of coping. But yes. your point here is that this is not a disability as much as it is a difference they've inherited. It's in not brain damage. It's the way, they've, the way they process information. The way they process information. And our expectations and culturally. Our cultural expectations. Do you need to read and write if you grow up in the jungles of South America? <laughs> no. You know, yeah. reading and writing is, is a highly technical type of process in highly developed societies. Yeah. And only 200 uh, of the languages on this planet out of 6,000 have a written component. So it's uh, not a very common type of thing. Uh, there's a, a, a language person, John McWhorter, who talks about writing being an artifice. Very interesting. Very so. interesting perspective. I, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for coming in. Very enlightening. My guest has been Dr. George Starr, Emeritus Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.